The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul with the Capital Stack, the podcast that interviews investors, operators, and founders about all things value creation. Today, we are talking to Adam Hunke, who is the principal of the Banner Health Venture Group. Uh, his primary responsibilities are identifying, evaluating, and building partnerships with external companies to deliver on innovation and growth opportunities within the Banner ecosystem. Banner Health currently has six portfolio companies uh, specializing mostly in software and healthcare services. Adam, how you doing? I'm okay. And right off the bat, David, I have to give you uh, a little bit of smack because hunk, it's hunky, not hunky. So oh. there's no, uh, uh, what's a little, it's like a, the nay symbol on top. Yeah. So just straight Well, hunky. I was, I knew that. I was, I was just doing that on purpose to try to make you sound more exotic. Well, and you give me a nice little intro so I don't have to think <laughs> about my, uh, my response too much. Exactly. Uh, but no, really happy to be here. Um, you know, the venture group at Banner has been fun. Uh, you kind of represent, each time you talk to a portfolio company or a prospective company, you're kind of representing 50 or so thousand people when you do that. So, like, that's really fascinating. It gives you, like, this odd level of pressure and control, sort of all those conversations. So it's really interesting. Yeah, the indirect employer, you know, is, mm-hmm. is definitely something kind of interesting and no one really talks about. Is that how much effect you do actually have on a greater scale? Yeah, and it's even turned into things where, like myself, just being intellectually curiosity, uh, have a lot of that across just business in general, but especially healthcare. You also have seen, and we can get into my background later, but I've been on the startup side twice, so you don't want to have these conversations and have them go nowhere. So there's an element of, like, you don't want to give false hope to entrepreneurs, but you also want to satisfy your own, like, internal curiosity and talking about these things and learning about these areas. Because Banner is kind of known. Banner's, look, it's a big system, biggest in Arizona. Um, we have vendors for tons of stuff. Uh, and sort of that's another issue. But like keeping a cognizance piece of, of sorry. Um, yeah, anyway, let's move. All right, so we'll segue on to that. Okay. I, I, dude, I saw you going through through a lot of stuff there, a lot, a lot of intellectually, like, you know, interesting, interesting topics. But let, let's start off, Adam, and tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, kind of career wise, I grew up in Nebraska, um, you know, Cornhusker born and bred. It's a religion out there um, and was able to sort of enter the venture capital ecosystem as a really young age. Uh, I was really lucky that sort of when I was in college, I, this is what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was really lucky enough to, number one, be able to pull that off. And then number two, to like, frankly, be correct about that, because a lot of times you just don't um, know what you want to be and how and how often do you try something and doesn't work. Um, so kind of my whole thing led up to interning at a tech transfer firm for the University of Nebraska Lincoln at the time, and then eventually transitioning to Invest Nebraska, which was sort of investing state economic uh, development dollars for the double bottom line of investment returns plus kind of job creation stuff. And in getting that job, I like quite literally walked up to a guy I didn't know and asked him for an inter- internship interview. And 95% of my career can be traced to that one sort of moment of like courage. 
which I think is like super interesting, especially looking back and how humbling that can be. So that's kind of the origin story career-wise um, on, on that stuff. Um, so was an investor Nebraska for two and a half or so years. We did 25 or 30 different deals in tons of different um, structures, most of which were like seed stage venture. But we also looked at some small buyouts. We looked at some mezzanine things. I just got a whole crash course in... And in high finance and how sort of the whole ecosystem worked, how business worked. Uh, I was really lucky that I had a mentor, uh, shout out to Mark, to really sort of take an ownership uh, interest in me and really helping me develop through that uh, ecosystem and asset class. So that was like really fun, really formative um, in that. And the last thing I'll kind of note on, on that is this is in Nebraska. This is like 20, summer 2012 through the end of 2014 or so. Uh, sort of the venture ecosystem there is, is more developed now, but like at the time, there's only like four or five firms that were doing anything. So you knew all of these people. I'm surprised there were that many. Yeah. And if founders would like try to play off us off each other, like we talk too much, like you just can't do that. It doesn't work. Um, and you also just have so much like capital supply power. Um, so you can really drive a lot of like crazy terms. And we would put... Because uh, my boss, Mark, had a private equity background. So we would put, like, these put-and-call options in these, like, venture deals. Really? Um, and all these, like, other crazy things. And there was founders that were, like, very almost arrogant about revenue targets. And and so part of us is like, well, hey, okay, we'll put some, you know, you want us to take less of your company. We want to take more of it kind of standard stuff. So we put it, he put his money where his mouth is. And he took this, like, we built this, like, warrant structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it was based on revenue metrics. Right. So you basically had a ratchet in yeah. case they didn't hit it. It's nuts. Like the, the amount of power um, of the supply was just, is really interesting. And it kind of was formative to me because it lets you know that as opposed to like a Silicon Valley type of things where all of their term sheets look pretty much the same, um, there's a ton of like the ability to be creative within that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, again, really interesting and like lets me be really creative with structures even today. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's it's really funny because I think venture capital is ultimately a very lazy man's game mm-hmm. as far as getting deals done. It's like, okay, well, it doesn't quite fit. And, you know, I'm not doing this. And it's a little bit outside my valuation range. And um, especially when you're in these undercapitalized markets, I mean, it's your job to make the deal work, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, to your point, I mean, okay, so he wants a higher valuation, you want a lower valuation, you don't know if he can actually grow into it, um, you know, so put a participation on it, right? Put yeah. a dividend on it, you know, make, make something to make it work. And if you, then, then if you lose, you lose, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, that's, that's only, I mean, to pass just basically because you're not, getting verbally there, right, uh, on, on a first pass is kind of lazy, in my opinion. Yeah, no, you're totally correct. Around, so for us, like, the company and its growth strategy had to make sense, but the deal also had to make sense. Because, like, the Dirty Secret Adventure, David, you know this, it's not about, like, are you the best company there, uh, you as a founder is pitching. It's like, are you the best one this month, this every other month, every third month, uh, depending on your sort of deal stage. And there's a lot of variation within that. Um, so with us, being able to see a ton of companies and tons of different industries that let me learn, but also, again, you optimize for both the deal and the company's growth strategy. Mm-hmm. And so that was mainly a Nebraska fund. You just invested mm-hmm. in Nebraska. We had to invest in Nebraska. We did a little bit of you know the economic development of trying to get people to move there, but that really didn't uh, didn't work. That's just a bad look. Yeah, it's 
Like it's a tough market. That's it's tough every, to do. It's everywhere. It's you a know tough know to I mean? do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Arizona is the same thing. They try to put money in companies and move here and uh-huh. all this other stuff. So, uh, so transition from there after two and a half or so years to another firm, uh, amusingly called Nebraska Global, uh, separate firm. This one, no state money. It was kind of a startup studio before the term studio was pretty in vogue. Uh, so they raised some money from some heavy hitter LPs. Uh, they did some uh, general sort of um, just normal venture capital investing. They had a development arm where they would do some development for equity deals. You could negotiate some of those. They had internally built portfolio companies, kind of a, a broad model of things. Uh, and I brought got brought on almost to, quote unquote, like clean up the portfolio. That a lot of these investments had been done and some of them, you know, weren't working as well. Uh, so I got brought on to sort of do that in a chief of staff associate sort of role to the founder, uh, to Steve Keen. And through that, we learned, or we didn't do any new deals in my whole two years there. We did some follow-ons. We did, we tried to sell, sell some things. Um, but also a sort of formative on me is I got to sit on uh, one board officially and then sort of three others through kind of my role and following uh, the founder around. And that opened up this whole element of managing companies that you don't see, that a funding round really is a point in time in a, in a company's lifestyle. A funding round is an increase in expectations uh, for that company, and sort of being able to manage through some of those things is harder than it looks. And then again, it sort of completes the whole um, picture of what that funding round is supposed to be. Cool. And that was your first board experience type role? Yep, first board experience. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. Uh, I, I want to do a lot more of that uh, in the future. That was Kind of amusing to get when you're like what 24 or 25 something like that right. uh, to be on those it's boards. It's intimidating, and, and to like, but you matter though. You're in these conversations that are like founder compensation. You talk about employee options. You talk about um, you know should a company is that acquisition offer even worth entertaining? Like you have these like really interesting com- uh, conversations that you just don't get otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not at the table, mm-hmm. right? And it's just uh and again credit to uh, another one of my mentors steve to sort of bring me into that and let me uh even voice opinions and not be afraid to to speak in those things that's mm-hmm. really interesting uh eventually kind of worked my way out of that job uh, ironically and then moved to chicago to complete my sort of coach to player transition that i'm outlining a little here uh, and i joined a, a, a young startup company called print with me uh they currently focus on apartment amenities printers for apartments uh, but at the time we're more focused on kind of shelling out printers to give to coffee shops. So this sort of thesis that a millennial only has to print like two or three times a year. And for that, like she's not going to buy a printer. That's kind of, that's kind of dumb. Um, but she will go to a coffee shop and the coffee shop can use that as lead generation. Yeah. I think I buy a new printer every two or three months <laughs> <laughs> and I still only print yeah. about two to three times. Uh, so again, really interesting concept. The fuckers just don't work. <laughs> well, because the ink, they have to like inject ink on the, I don't know the right word, but on uh, essentially they have to inject ink to lubricate the printer because it's not printing often enough. And that's what causes the ink to um, to de- deplete and then all the negativity around it. Right. So it's, again, you learn about printers and... and <laughs> Flawed machine. Yeah. Right. And like some of that stuff was nuts. And like my focus was on almost all the back office functions. We did accounting, we did board reporting. I I sort of set up Salesforce from scratch, which is still an awful, awful job. Um, And you get to set up printers and you get to call coffee shops when their Wi-Fi is out. Like it's a hodgepodge of tons of stuff. Um, You know, it was there for about six months. A bunch of us left for some culture issues all at the same time. I actually went back to Nebraska. All the same time. So it's kind of like a mutiny. 
Uh, there was like four of us that would have left over the course of like six weeks. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so nuts. That like, didn't look good. No. And like, look, credit to John for kind of sticking it out and he's had really good luck and that company's still like active. And again, on the naivete element, you, you join these, this company and there was five of us that were on there. Three salesperson, the founder, and then me, and then there's a part-time person. And you kind of like, all right, this is the dream team, right? Like these are the people that we're all going to have, you know, VPs of whatever area. It's like four years down the road and like, hey, we're going to go create this. And just like how wrong that was at the time, just how much like churn and all that stuff matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, it's like you're just learning a ton. The pace of learning in a startup like that just was incredible um, for that. Um, So again, I kind of actually right after that amusing was the first time I went to Arizona um, and my family has a snowbird house here that I just kind of like camped out at for a month. You never left. Um, we'll get to that part. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that you part. You change the locks and you just... just yeah, you're, just, you're ahead yeah. about a year and a half okay, for the never leaving part. Um, yeah, I ended up back uh, at uh, in Nebraska for a portfolio company under the Nebraska Global brand called Akivera. Uh, Akivera deals with fall prevention in hospitals. Um, falls are bad. Uh, if a fall would happen under supervised care, it's called a sentinel event, which means that any post-fall care is not covered by insurance. Ooh, okay. So if a patient would fall and they would require surgery, that surgery is non-revenue producing. So that's OR solely a cost center. Um, so falls are bad. And there's a lot of implications. Really kind of deep business. But that was an instance of uh, I kind of joined the founder and I'm like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be here five years or five weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but to raise money, he needed a somebody to write a business plan and he needed someone to build a very detailed financial model. Mm-hmm. And like I could do that. So I, I got hired, nice. basically. Uh, so there for about a year and a half, ended up sort of leading almost all of their uh, outbound efforts. So I had like the back of office stuff. Now I had the front of house. So you're, you're talking to nurses and you're trying to sort of... Um, you're trying to sell this new technology. You're trying to get demos because if you can play show and tell and you watch and have the nurses watch a patient move sort of on the bed and have it alert and then see it on the phone, et cetera, it's really powerful uh, for those nurses. So we did that. And again, I'm not a salesperson. I'm not going to pretend to be. But at the time, and again, startup sense, like I was the best person for that. Did you like it? I did. Um, the business has a lot of depth because you find out that a lot of the like post fall costs are all about like power law outcomes for legal settlements that like most falls are really harmless, but there's going to be like one in, I don't know, one in 20, one in 30 that are going to be very damaging where a patient will, uh, will potentially die from that. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's other sort of medical errors potentially that could lead to that. And then thus there's you know, an eight-figure legal settlement, something like that, then come out of it. So you eventually realize that that legal um, legal liability mitigation is one of the few areas that healthcare will move pretty quickly on, especially if something bad had happened to them. Um, but again, you're building something sort of from scratch. Like you sold, I uh, sold about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of pilots mm-hmm. um, across three places. One in Australia, uh, ironically. Um, and then talk to big systems like CHI and LifePoint. And again, like you just learn so much. Uh, and it, again, not a salesperson, but I can do a presentation dozen, dozen times and get better at it. And I can also send a follow-up email. Like mm-hmm. it's not that hard if you're sort of creating that from nothing. Um, uh, long story short on that one, uh, all, kind of all while I was doing some of the uh, sales-related things, the, we were built the software on the Microsoft Connect camera that came out with the Xbox One. Mm, um, I remember that one. Yeah. So Microsoft eventually discontinued that camera, which 
was a problem. <laughs> uh, to put <laughs> Which it, completely fucked your whole business. Just to put it lightly. Yeah. Uh, so that kicked off a bunch of engineers going and talking to like Texas Instruments and a bunch of the chip companies to build a new camera, like our own camera. Uh, and ideally, because they've been doing software development and computer vision development on that stuff for years. So there's just such this like, the sunk cost is too big. Like you can't just move on because uh, you have to redo all the uh, training data. Uh, that process never really got fixed uh, and eventually cost the company uh, my job eventually, mm. um, which is like, it, that was rough uh, to be totally honest because like I feel that I was doing a decent job. Like could I have done better? I'm sure. But like kind of given the circumstances, given budget constraints, like I thought it did well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when I went to Arizona and never left. Gotcha. Um, so same thing. I went to uh, my family are Goodman Westerners and have a snowbird house uh, in Arizona and I just went and hung out there. And over that period, I was unemployed for a while and tried to sort of network my way to a job in like five cities at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that in Chicago and it worked and I ended up getting the job that I did. But I was, you know, between here and Nashville and Denver and Nebraska and a little Chicago, um, a little, I live in Austin for like six weeks uh, on a couch. Uh, kind of during that period, I was very nomadic, listened to tons of podcasts. Like mm-hmm. I kinda, I'm jealous of how much time I had for podcasts at the time. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's just so many. It's of amazing them. how productive you can feel listening to a podcast, but in actuality, you're not doing anything. Yeah, with podcasts, I I really do believe that driving is like dead time, and yeah. you may as well just like fill it with something productive. Totally. Yeah. Same thing with exercise. If you're going to run for an hour, I mean, listen to a podcast. Like, like same thing. I was unemployed for like eight or nine months. I came out of that, and it was never. I've never more fit. I started doing Orange Theory at the time, and like I would go five times a week. I was crazy fit and crazy, um, you know, knowledgeable about like current events. <laughs> but like unemployed at that cost. You're me a great f- conversationalist. Yeah. <laughs> you looked awesome, uh, but I was so poor. Yeah, <laughs> but you had no money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so eventually, kind of crashed in Arizona because at the time um, the house was unoccupied and free again because it was uh, uh, would be April. Um, yeah, March or April of going 19. Going into the off-season. Yeah, going into the off-season. It was free and unoccupied, which is just powerful. Uh, and then got connected with, um, actually, Tim and Eric Crown's family office. They were sort of connecting and building this partnership with Arizona State to potentially commercialize more of their technology. And Tim and Eric Crown were the CEOs and founders of Integrate, which was... Insight. Insight, sorry. Insight. Insight. And that was a, you know, giant, you know, uh, managed, managed service company, yeah, bar... Uh, I would call them a, a smaller CEW, but the same sort of thing where they would, um, you know, help you with various Microsoft purchasing and sort of bundle that stuff together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, t- Tim and Eric are great. Um, and, you know, it was my job with the ASU thing to, like, talk to professors and grad students. Because if you know the tech transfer process, like, all the technology that's created by them is owned by the university. And the process of tech transfer is, is taking that out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so our sort of thesis was we could develop or we had a rofer on a license for this technology. So we would go in, we'd find out which ones have commercial potential. We would then basically grab that license and then start with the goal of building companies around that. Um, on that. Uh, again, long story short on that stuff. It's so much work. It is. It's really hard. We'll get into that in just a second. Like we talked to 65 or so grad students and professors, different inventions. Uh, one of them is worthwhile. One. Uh, that company exists called Wearabots. Uh, so shout out to Mo uh, on that stuff. It's a geospatial uh, technology based on an open source project. Mm-hmm. Um, so see, if I was a good operator, I'd be one. <laughs> you know, at the bottom line is like, I see so many investors, like they're trying to like, you know, at like, you know, create companies and do all this stuff. And I'm just like, I just want to find guys that, you know, are doing it for me. Mm-hmm. 
and you just realize that these professors they build their technology, however defined, to basically write a thesis paper about it. But like the chasm between that bench research and like commercialization research is nuts, mm-hmm. uh, and there's lack of incentives to sort of build that. So you just have no way to like push that along, mm-hmm. uh, which eventually sort of. Ironically, I was trying to like build the whereabouts company I just mentioned within my job, but eventually this sort of banner thing came along, and, and I was, you know, in Oculus, I was like scrolling through LinkedIn, and I just like, oh, Banner's like hiring a venture group thing, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, and so you Google, and Banner doesn't have a ventures arm, um, so I got in that that job process. I kind of realized that they weren't hiring me to be underneath of someone who's been doing digital health investing for 15 years. That I could go into that job and I could masquerade as that person, kind of given uh, my experience. Um, which has turned out to be totally, totally, totally true. Um, so like, yeah, but you sold into health systems. Yeah. Uh, I, I got told later that I had like, quote, the right amount of healthcare experience. Like you weren't like on the floor, corporate jaded. Right. But you knew enough. Uh, right. Particularly to be excited. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, like that's sort of terrifying because that banner is like honest to God, a thousand times the employee count of my previous largest uh, company I worked for. And just like seeing all the processes that they have, um, and, for sort the, of, and for those people that aren't in Arizona that are listening to this, what, what is Banner Health and, you know, how big is an organization is that? Yeah, so Banner Health is a large integrated delivery network uh, with 30 hospitals across, I think, seven states. Uh, the states is a little misleading because California, Nebraska, and Nevada all have a single hospital per state. Uh, but we're the largest player in Arizona um, and then, like, more than 50% market share, maybe closer to 60% across, um, across Arizona. And then we have three hospitals in the northern Colorado, kind of Fort Collins, uh, Greeley area. Um, you know, payer arms, we have a Medicaid plan. We have a joint venture with Atna to cover their lives. Uh, Banner has, like, sort of every healthcare asset under the sun, except for, like, long-term care. Mm. Uh, like, Banner owns half of an uh, air ambulance company. Like, who knew um, right. on that stuff? So it's very built out. It's very much a, a product of acquisitions um, to kind of understand the whole, like, financing stuff. So it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, 55,000 um, at the time, like employees, again, like massive health organization, probably the somewhere in the teens uh, of the largest uh, systems in the U.S. Okay. I think. So you are in the belly of the beast. I am in the belly of the beast. And again, it gives you a crazy purview of uh, it's nuts like you, when you go from a startup side and you like send, because you had a, a Acuvera. Like, every week it was my goal to send, like, five blind emails to, like, people that are prospects, right? And you just got to kind of build up that funnel. And, like, one in ten get responded and, like, one in 30 or whatever get a meeting, which is just rough, right? At Banner, like, everybody responds to your emails. Mm-hmm. It's nuts, actually, um, because you're, like, both a capital provider and a very large healthcare system. So on the company side, on the company side. Yeah. So for startups, we talked. Yeah, to. of course, everyone. Because it, it, it's a it's it's an impenetrable wall, mm-hmm. right? To get in, they want to sell into the hospital, and you're one of the only ways to get in. Yeah. So again, that's something I'm just like learning through this. Because even um, look, I don't know, maybe maybe for you guys with the DWP uh, Capital, like does every startup respond to your emails. Like I don't know no. the answer. <laughs> yeah. Fuck no, no, <laughs> no, no, no one responds to my emails. Yeah. Um, but we sort of build that, and our sort of goal within Banner is to partner with Banner's business units and help them do their jobs better. Uh, there was this notion coming down from the CEO prior to my tenure that Banner was, quote-unquote, giving away intellectual property, that when the, a company would deploy within Banner, uh, we would teach them how to deal with procedures. We would teach them how to do things. There's that, like, soft 
IP element that we were just quote unquote giving up. And I'm sure that lots of corporates across the country have done with your vendors. Yeah, with vendors. Yeah. Yes. So, so essentially, you're giving them the workflows. You're mm-hmm. helping them build their product. Yep, we're having we're teaching you how to integrate it with our medical records, with our other software systems. This like, and, and that eventually got created in this venture group where we were tasked now with okay, if we're going to go create that, go get an ownership stake also. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty simple from that perspective um, on it. The ironic thing about Banner is that I joined Banner on March second of twenty twenty. Um, so I had two weeks again, new program, and then two weeks then the world ended. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I had a week of doing nothing because again, like new program, new employee. I didn't think I'd do anything for months, right. uh, given this COVID stuff. And then our whole group got pulled into like crowdsourcing PPE. <laughs> um, so like my myself and a colleague Russ, we got tasked with face shields. Mm. So you know, I'm not a super networker, but I, I'm a person of like, okay, I have like three ideas of mm-hmm. people that I can talk to, and we eventually created this low key manufacturing line of of face shields cool and we found a design and we found 3d printers like there's a company in phoenix i don't know the name and i wish i could give you credit that builds these like um the ornaments or the molds for christmas cookies Hmm. that are like one's a tree and one's a wreath and all that stuff there's a company in phoenix that builds those that has like 40 3d printers whoa so we eventually found them and like retasked all those printers to like build these face shield molds Hmm. um there was that. We had a dentist's office. We had ones from the Children's Museum. We had ones from um, the Tucson. The, it was a U of A, like a builder, makerspace, something like that. Mm-hmm. A U of A. Tons of them. Uh, eventually, like, because you have to, like, reverse supply chain that stuff. Because, like, hey, what's going to be the bottleneck? Is it going to be the printers? Is it going to be the composite that goes in the printers to build the things? But they also have the plastic shields. you got to have someone that can mold plastic. you got to have plastic. Plastic turned out to be, like, what's... Um, sort of the larger constraint, but uh, shout out to Kirk Strawn. Uh, I don't know if you know him in town. Uh, he sort of, in his uh, makerspace, was able to sort of build all this together. Um, so credit to him. But that was my first, like, four weeks at Banner. Um, and eventually, about six weeks in, we did our first deal called Baby Scripts, uh, which is in the, mater- the maternal uh, space. So what's your workflow like? Workflow like? Um, there's sort of this balance that we have to take of, look, Again, I'm a curious person. I want. I find these companies. We see, you know, whether it comes from Twitter or whatever. You see these companies, um, and you're like, "Oh, that could be cool at Banner." It's maybe a new healthcare problem. Um, but we kind of learned the hard way that it's really difficult for us to bring companies in um, because we have companies die for just like dumb political reasons um, mm-hmm. that I wish I could like detail a little bit more. Um, so mostly, we spend a lot of time connecting with. Banner's business units and trying to kind of low-key inject ourselves into existing vendor processes um, and maybe kind of push them toward, instead of going with like established vendors, can we push you toward, hey, let's co-develop something with this other vendor. Let's kind of build, and we can get ownership stake. Maybe the vendor is small. We can get like 10 or so percent uh, of, the, of the company. Um, so we spend a lot of time kind of talking to business units and kind of figuring out what, where the banner is going. Hmm. Um, that's another big piece where as opposed to like kind of previous jobs and you're doing seed stage investing, maybe like you do, your first thought is like, okay, is this company going to die in 18 months? Right. Like what is, well, if you're doing kind of later stage stuff, like we've done a little bit of, um, you can sort of spend your time on upside diligence. Like if this works, what happens? Like how does the market have to shift for this to work? Which is a really interesting mindset I hadn't had before. Really fascinating. Um, so again, on this sort of where healthcare is going, spend a lot of time on that. And then we get a lot of, 
um, pieces where like you take pay attention to what the payers are doing. Like Optum is doing uh, a great job of like unbundling everything outside of the physical hospital. Uh, so we, we really care kind of what they are doing and then kind of connected with that. There are some groups we're a part of that bring these health systems together. So like, is there companies that we can create companies we can buy as a collection of health systems to sort of make uh, the world better. Mm-hmm. Um, other piece is that we help our business leaders think a little bit long-term. Because if you're a normal person, if you're a quote-unquote a normal business leader, like you want, you're focused on your operations the next like three or six months. Mm-hmm. Can we have a conversation like once a month, once every other month that says, hey, what have you seen in the last little bit that like you think will change your um, industry? over the next like five years and like is that something we can pounce on mm-hmm. so we spend a lot of time in like the the travel nursing and the expenses around that were were a really big deal um this past fall and and through most of the pandemic and like well, okay what can we do in that um you know could we go like literally buy travel nursing companies mm-hmm. um but like and so, who, so who's we when you're talking about this i mean so you're, you're thinking about like some thematic investings and you know i mean mm-hmm. My experience as an investor has mostly been alone, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, who do you get to collaborate with with these types of, these different kind of conversations? So it's a tough question, and it's definitely dependent on sort of what area within that we are. So in that instance, we would be talking to either finance, who's sort of, quote-unquote, annoyed on how much stuff costs, and then down to, um, look, within Banner, the nurses essentially establish, like, how many nurses they need, and then that goes to our talent acquisition to uh, supply them with contract labor to fill gaps, and then that goes to finance um, on there. So there's a whole chain of things that we have yeah, to Yeah, so are you be... just, like, walking down the halls and say, hey, what are you having problems with? <laughs> <laughs> like, just poking your head like, in and, you know, can I find a company for that? Yeah, like, I wish that's, again, a knock on uh, kind of joining Banner when I did. Like, it's hard to have some of those, like, serendipitous conversations that I think would make that easier. Because, mm-hmm. like, if we, you know, schedule a half hour with somebody, you kind of have to have an agenda. You kind of have to, like, have, hey, what are you looking to do out of this? And it's harder and you're to taking say. Their, you're taking their time. Yeah, and it's harder to say, hey, like. I think I would hate you, actually. If I was working and I, just, I saw you, like, come in and say, hey, can I, can you, you know, I want to push this little shitty startup company into your workflow. You're not wrong. And, and I, I totally understand. Because, like, I want to I take what you're doing yeah. and, like, make it better. And, right. like, I want to, like, put myself in your shoes for, like, two months while we go through this process of the company. And then I want to, like, not talk to you for a while. Right. Like, <laughs> exactly. Um. You're like the strategy guy that comes in, offers a little bit of advice, you know, and then kind of leaves. And yeah, like, uh, like sure, maybe I'm a McKinsey consultant, and on Thursday night I'm, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <no>. exactly. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong, but you also like are trying to develop rapport with that stuff. So right. you know, the more you talk to somebody, can you get better ideas out of it? Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, I hopefully is really appreciated. And if it's not appreciated, then I need to point it stands even more. Um, but, like, do they like this sort of speculative conversation? So it's not now, but, like, okay, how does this change? How is this changing? What can we do now to get in front of this trend uh, that's otherwise hitting? Um, so I'm hoping that those conversations are uh, appreciated. Yeah, and so did the bigger, like, the bigger corporate bureaucracy say, hey, this is Adam. He's coming in. He's looking for companies to improve our financial interests and to cr- create efficiencies. You need to talk to him if he comes to you. So, or did you just kind of like start building these relationships and like have to explain what you did and what you are to these people? You definitely, so it's kind of both, but it's more the second one, particularly the education comment you made on the second point there. Um, you know, venture capital, people don't know what that is right? Uh, within a health system. 
you know, I have this line that a lot of our frontline professionals don't have what I'll call a license to kind of think and bring companies in that right. are different. Right. Um, so you have to kind of do that. It's just execution. It's just execution. They, they come don't, in and execute. There's no strategy, right? They have their set of problems and they don't know that like new solutions exist to those problems. So part of my job is like, hey, here's a cool company. And you find someone within Banner, like from a title perspective that might care about that. And you say, hey, is this interesting? Um, for that and then that can create these larger conversations and sometimes you just like really hit it and other times they don't respond um, right. which, is, which is also frustrating <laughs> yeah. um, for that right and especially in an era you know we just had covid you know i mean staffing great resignation i mean there's tons of issues that the healthcare systems are are, are facing and um you know like they're trying to just staff their their companies right mm-hmm. now right and to have like these bigger it's almost like they're 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 too busy to strategize which is kind of counterintuitive because strategy is supposed to make their lives a little bit more efficient yeah look I'll, I'll shameless plug this one of the kind of the big areas thematically we're looking at is that nursing workflow things um you know there's there was a nursing shortage already uh it's been accelerated by covid because you're seeing uh, people leaving the workforce, uh, those that are older, not staying in as long, all of these sort of kind of issues. Uh, and we're trying to look for companies that solve nursing's problems. Nursing really sort of is a collection of dozens and dozens of like sub 15 minute tasks that together is a job. Mm-hmm. Um, those are almost by definition difficult to do technology perspective because uh, it's not software. Look, healthcare is not Healthcare doesn't get solved by better software. Healthcare is an no. operational problem, Correct. Um, which is like the biggest realization you have to have. Like, it's a behavioral change. Yeah. that needs to happen. It's a mindset. Yeah, like I mentioned the fall prevention company earlier. Like our competition was not uh, another fall company. Our competition was nursing workflow and hourly rounding. Really, that was our competition um, for that. So you kind of. Again, I lost where I was going on that. Oh, the nursing workflow stuff. Uh, so we're looking for like new things to have staffing ratios continue uh, as they are. Because like there's in various units, you know, ICU is potentially like one and a half nurses per patient. It's very intensive. There's other ones that it's closer to three, three to one um, patients to nurse. The historical norms, personal opinion, the historical norms around that are not going to hold. Like there's going to be fewer nurses and more patients mm-hmm. in that. And like, how can we find or create technology in that space to make that better? Mm-hmm. Like a nurse spends way too much time documentation. Can we do better on documentation? You know, but, and there's also like kind of depressing where nursing is a huge banner probably has 20,000 nurses. Like it's probably more than a, it's more than a third of our total staff are nurses. And there's, and you still need more. And we still need more. Uh, at, at one time we had, like a thousand open positions, just an incredible, incredible <laughs> it's, number. It's insanity. Yeah. We even have like hospitals almost competing against other hospitals with like different signing bonuses. So like the, uh, there, there's like some things in Banner are so centralized and some things are just not, and I don't never understand kind of where, where it is. Um, but yeah, like we're trying to sort of make that better and that's a big deal. And, and we want to, again, care for patients. We want to care for them responsibly. We want to uh, minimize mistakes through that process. And again, there's, I would argue there's almost, more companies like per physician specialty than there are for nurses. Mm-hmm. And like I'm shameless plugging for a lot of conversations I've had with investors. Of like, hey, if you find these like nursing workflow companies, like send them to me. There's going to be money for these on a such a more and a bit cute problem than it has been in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so shameless plug, if you do have any nursing workflow companies, please do uh, email me. Gotcha. You heard of Hallmark? 
Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, they're they're too big. I mean, they're not they're not taking money, but like they, the card they, company. Yeah, <laughs> just like the card company. <laughs> uh, but they're yeah they're taking off like like a weed. Um, so healthcare isn't solved by software, mm-hmm. right? There definitely needs to be behavioral change. Um, from what I you know we haven't done it. I actually I don't think I've ever invested in a company that's sold directly into health systems from an IDN perspective. We sold into physician groups, which is a, a different animal. Um, but what you know, what we what we always found when we're talking to early stage founders and, and the sales cycle that encompasses the, these types of, of, of um, customers is that just getting buy-in requires so many conversations and there's so many stakeholders. And just, I mean, how, how does that centralization versus decentralization actually work? Is it getting any better? Is it that people aren't like incentivized to work together? Like, what, mm. what is what is the what is the what's the problem here? Yeah, see, I knew this question was coming, and I still don't have a good answer for it. Um, around so to make healthcare, I think I would first say that you have to be a solution to a problem that is acutely had in that one moment. Um, if you're sort of solving, if Banner has a vendor for something and you're trying to replace that vendor, like, good luck. Never, not ha- happening. N- never happening. Not happening. Yeah. Um, Banner has had that vendor for a long time. There's, um, there's a stasis that is really important through that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to sort of either switching costs. I yeah, mean, switching yeah. costs are incredible. And the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Yeah, right? uh, and sometimes like Cerner, for example, some of these big deployments will have staff members dedicated to that instance of that software, that customized version. And again, like now you're talking about hypothetical removing people, right? And again, that's harder. Um, so number one, like you got to find a problem that is acute to that system at the time. Um, that's a way harder said than done is sort of finding that out. Um, the other piece is again, like you spam emails, but like you really, the higher you can start, the better. Um, it's like we get things from execs or board members that come down and eventually get passed to us and, and we, we have to take a look at it and we take it somewhat seriously. So that sort of networking aspect is, it really does matter, uh, especially if you want call it an authentic uh, kind of a conversation right. uh, about it. Like a real look. Mm, like a real look. Um, and then the other thing is just new problems. Um, so there's a lot of problems in healthcare that like we don't really know that we had. There's a lot of problems that like, um, like the fall thing again, like a nurse just sort of exists, like falls exist. They are what they are and they don't really know the solution for them. Um, so if there's not a solution that's sort of dominant in that market, you being new and novel can matter. Uh, especially if there's something like you have a good video or something like that to show uh, and express uh, from that. So I would I would say that again. Um, and then when you're signed to a hospital, regardless of the examples I just used, like you almost have to assume it's an RFP process. Like you really do. Um, like our uh, so a lot of our teams are really good at selecting vendors mm-hmm. that they really care and they really look at a lot of different areas. So they will if you're not like best in class, like they will find out. Um, so the bar is sort of higher. Uh, there's a quote from, uh, I think her name is um, Diane Green, who founded VMware, or was the CEO of VMware, where she made a quote that you can't use like lean startup methodology on building software for nuclear submarines. Like it just has to work. Like you don't get, um, you can't like A-B test some of that stuff. If you're in healthcare, especially if it's touching patients. There's no tolerance. There's no tolerance at all. Right. None um, for that. So that's another piece um, that's important. And then I'd also kind of make a, a plug to understanding reimbursements is paramount. You have to sort of know where you're getting into. Um, like I was talking to a guy who was 
he probably worked for the government of Quebec in Canada and was trying to kind of talk to healthcare companies that are there and try to get them to be the U.S. And I was kind of just chatting with him uh, through this thing called Lunch Club and like, hey, how do I do this? And he presented this company that did um, that like did ortho surgeries. And I don't remember the exact process, but my impression is that it reduced the number of like ortho surgeries that Banner would do. Mm-hmm. And long story short, like. We make a lot of money from ortho surgeries. Yes, why would you want to do that? Yeah, like, like don't sell don't sell the hospital a product to reduce the number of ortho surgeries they do. Mm-hmm. Sell that to a payer. You got a better shot, right? Um, to do that. So there's an element of just like really know who you're selling to, um, and that payer provider question is one that we wrestle with every day. Like almost every company that comes in, we have to have that conversation. Is this better on the payer side or is it better on the hospital side? Yeah, and then, so what, what about, like, vendor pricing? I mean, does pricing matter when your balance sheet's that big? Part of me, a lot of me says no. Um, as someone who has, you know, made up prices and sold them to hospital systems, you know, every part that you don't get knocked is, is I would double your prices. Just, like, there's no, like, negative, you know, there's plenty of things. I'm sure a tongue depressor, you could probably go to like a Walgreens and buy like 500 in a box for like $10. I'm sure they're $100 in healthcare. Right. Uh, just like assume that, you know, the macro stuff inflation, assume that healthcare inflation exists and it's like seven times. Yeah, I see these healthcare software companies selling for $20,000. I'm like, you spent 18 months to get a $20,000 a year contract. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like it, there's no so, math there. That's a such, yeah. And I'm right about that. That's one of my like pieces on entrepreneurs. Like the economics of salespeople is such an underrated piece of it. Like mm-hmm. you have to have ACVs that fit how much you're paying people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, commissions and company profit and, and all that stuff. Otherwise you got to do a freemium type model. Like that's company creation stuff is really big. Um, because you could spend the same amount of time in a sales cycle selling to a payer and, you know, land a million dollar contract. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that payers, and if someone solved this, please let me know, the act of like selling to payers and having that product go from the payers and have, and then enter their uh, like health insurance membership at a really high take rate uh, is one of the kind of the big opportunities in healthcare. And then having that go from a payer to physician and having that physician, frankly, treat part of their patient panel differently than every other patient in their panel based on their insurance company. Like if you can solve that human behavior problem, like you'll make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big sort of thing. So payers are, it's hard. Your sales cycles are going to be as long or longer. Um, the contracts are going to be larger, right. generally speaking. And then last thing on like ROI stuff, like you do have to have a slide and, you know, maybe a website calculator or something like that, that shows some ROI that uses some sort of standard metrics. The other knock is that, Almost entirely the way through your vendor process, I'm going to assume more than three quarters through, we're not going to check that math. That there are times where the vendor is going to project that stuff better, uh, especially if it's something where the cost is not like easily. Um, it's like there's not an easy like financial line item to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about on risk pricing? Seeing that you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of movement, or you know maybe not as much as people want on on risk type uh, payments, uh, does that matter in selling softwares or services into hospital systems? Uh, I'll say from my own perspective, uh, generally all four of those companies. I think that you know as a, as a macro thought, like kind of all the easy startup uh, companies have already been created. Like now we're into the harder stuff, um, and I think. The risk on stuff matters. You know, if you come to Banner or any other health system and say, 
hey, we can pilot this and it's going to be like revenue positive or revenue neutral or like cost neutral, you're already massively ahead of the others mm-hmm. um, for that. I would really encourage for those companies to do that. Um, you know, I think that's such an opportunity for hospitals if they want to cut their own costs, like doing some large scale um, introspective of their own vendors and like how much does vendors say that we're saving with them versus how much are we actually saving with them. Um, I think it's a huge opportunity for, for companies or someone could build, I don't know, some consortium thing. Uh, but I'd really encourage the risk off things. Again, you have to know your market really well. So just to be clear, like really well um, with all the incentives structures, because it's not only the incentive structure on the reimbursement side, but like what does that create and some of the downstream things. Uh, again, be super aware. Uh, but if you are, like, again, I would encourage it wholeheartedly. So what about, uh, what are some other tr- themes besides, you know, nursing management and uh, the, the scheduling around that, um, and then, you know, some of the, the payer doctor kind of communications. What are some of the big macro trends that you see huge areas of disruption? I don't want to make you charge. I shouldn't want to charge you for this stuff. Um, I think that a couple a couple more thoughts. Again, uh, repeating on the nursing documentation and nursing workflow stuff, that's a big deal. Um, the physician uh, kind of going from a payer to a physician and having that behavior, again, reiterating that. Uh, same note, with COVID, you've seen many fewer like pharmaceutical reps and medical device reps that go into doctor's offices and doctors and hospitals. Uh, and some of those hasn't came back yet uh, in terms of the hospitals and physician offices allowing those reps back in. Um, so I would... I think the whole like active physician marketing, marketing to physicians, whether it be pharmaceuticals, whether it be medical devices, whether it be some of the digital therapeutics that will be able to show uh, lifetime values that will be high, and they'll have these like, kind of field sales type models. But if that doesn't come back, like how do you market things to physicians? That's a good one. Um, I'm like really interested in that space and kind of where that goes. Um, again, I don't know if, how much Banner could do with it, but like if you came to me with that company, I would, I would give it a run. Um, same sort of thing around physician, uh, as physicians as influencers, uh, I think is a, another like low key trend where you have the, uh, it's like the Dr. Oz, he's like running for, co- running for Senate now in <laughs> Pennsylvania, really? uh, but he was on a talk show, um, at one of those afternoon things and he sort of turned his medical knowledge into a certain celebrity. Well, I think if you take out the TV show aspect, there's certain luminary physicians at every health system where people will come to see them. Mm-hmm. You know, like Mayo is tertiary care, right? Like you go there because you don't go there because you want to. You go there because like you need that level of physician. Um, well, every health system has certain physicians like that. And if a physician, if that one of them would leave and go to a competitor, uh, especially in the same metro area, a lot of patients would go with. Um, so I think some of that, is really valuable uh, to health systems. And I'm sure we pay people plenty of money to do that. But having these physicians really be acutely aware of their value to health systems um, in terms of like salary negotiation stuff, I think is really interesting hmm. um, for that. that. That is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I see it a lot in the, uh, the med spa space and the naturopath mm. space. I and mean, these guys are killing it. Yeah, allegedly the best um, money... Uh, plus work-life balance uh, medicine is in dermatology, hmm. allegedly. Interesting. Uh, I wouldn't know, but like um, on that, what other themes can I give you? What about in behavioral health? Behavioral is hard. Um, we actually just did an investment in, uh, in this that depending on when this gets recorded, and we're recording on May 23rd, like mm-hmm. that, um, they'll be pressed out pretty soon. It's a company called Blaze Advisors where they sort of build these 
clinically integrated networks of mental health professionals to reduce the cost of care in certain populations. Um, so mental health is hard. Mental health is been exposed as a need area over the last two years, especially with COVID. And a lot of it is sort of like run-of-the-mill anxiety-related things. Um, we, we as a society are so much more aware of that uh, now than we have before. And there's also like way fewer clinicians. There's also stats that uh, the average psychiatrist is like 55 plus hmm. um, for that. And you're seeing even within the, the clinician shortage, you're seeing clinicians want to move from seeing patients that are more mentally ill and ones that have like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder to these um, two more outpatient clinics or maybe employer-sponsored clinics because their patients are just easier um, than sort of dealing with that. Would you rather deal with kind of eight cases of run-of-the-mill anxiety or would you rather deal with like six schizophrenics on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Um, like that's hard. That's pushing the whole thing. Uh, I think that mental health is... Look, our definition of mental health is based on the PHQ-9, PHQ-8, PHQ-9, which was, I think, made by Johnson & Johnson or whatever uh, pharma company had Zoloft, mm. that they made Zoloft to try to take the prescription of Zoloft out of mental health professionals and into, like, primary care. So they created this measure of um, how, like, mentally stable, quote-unquote, you are. Sure. It's eight questions. It literally is still the best thing we have to <laughs> diagnose any sort of mental health professional. And every time you go to the doctor's office, like the physician is required of you to do that. You, or you do that with the physician. That has to get better. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. There's companies out there now, um, you know, Kitsugi, uh, Ellipsis, that are taking a snippet of voice between, mm-hmm. say, sub-30 seconds sometimes. We've heard as little as three seconds, but I don't really believe that. Um, or they can, because how you talk, they can give you a PHQ score from hmm. that um that doesn't really help the problem um i think that's more lead gen but what do you than, do with the information right yeah exactly um hey go see your physician great you're gonna do that anyway um maybe it's more maybe is, is the correct answer it's more like passive monitoring so if you do so if we would put that in a phone line for example um you know could you or a totally unrelated technology use of that is could you record because you like have a customer service like farm and have the the person calling in like record their complaints and then you can like score them for how mad they are mm-hmm. and then like route that to someone who's better with dealing with mad people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do that in non healthcare ways. Um, but again, I don't really know how that gets solved. Yeah, um, my score would be like neurotic, <laughs> depressed, anxious, insecure. Like send me to that guy. Yeah, and look. I'm not kind of knocking the system, but I don't know a better way. There's tons of areas in healthcare that are just so much more qualitative than quantitative. And every one of those is an opportunity for entrepreneurs to kind of take advantage of. Yeah. One thing I thought that was kind of interesting, um, this is more in the physician space than in the, the healthcare IDN hospital space is uh, integrated behavioral health, where there's, you know, these kind of white label services that kind of come in and sit, you know, in the, in the primary workflow of, of, um, primary care physicians and when they check off a bunch of these scores they say okay well you know you can actually see this person right now and mm-hmm. then they kind of go in and then they do an assessment and, and can actually follow up because the attrition rate of initial diagnosis or initial like you know onset of 
you know, a type of problem to an actual solution is, is, you know, is ridiculous because people don't want to go to the outpatient mental health facility. It's, you know, there's a lot of stigma, you know, around that. They don't want to be seen there. But if you could do that within the context of going to your primary care physician or within a hospital system, I think there's a, a much higher adoption rate. Yeah, I think there's a company in town doing that. Yeah, Evaldum. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, been that. I think that's interesting. The a, a similar notion of like the a lot of primary care are asking primary care providers are getting asked or would like to give mental health referrals, uh, but they don't really know where to put them. They don't really know where to go. Like that whole referral management thing needs to get better mm-hmm. um, for that. But then you get into the clinician sort of issues that I mentioned before. Actually, um, one more macro comment on on mental health. I think. Like diabetes is sort of the most known quote unquote comorbidity from a condition. It's it's one that like you can die from diabetes, but more often you're going diabetes is going to exacerbate something else that's wrong with you, and that's going to be what kind of what does the bad things. Mental health and having being a long term depressive, I think, will be eventually qualified as uh, as a comorbidity condition, comorbid condition on that level. Um, and I think I'd love to see over time, and I think there's some of these um, in process, but how much depression exacerbates some of those conditions. So I think being proactive on mental health, to your point earlier, is is really important. There's even um, some of the payers now, especially Medicaid plans, are penalizing, or sorry, states that manage the Medicaid plans are penalizing the plans for not having uh, mental health referrals. So for example, there's hospital systems that if you are go to the ED or you um, have an inpatient stay for a mental health condition, you have to see a mental health provider within seven days. Not like schedule an appointment, but you have to be in and see that one. Uh, it's a little bit of what Blaze does to sort of power some of that stuff. Um, so there's more just general cognizant of mental health and having that be integrated um, for it. Uh, but again, it's difficult to measure our impact. It's difficult to measure a lot in that space without some quantitative things. Nice. Nice. All right. So a couple quand, uh, canned questions before we end today. What is your favorite book? Um, October Sky, when I read it in probably high school, uh, about Homer Hickam and the Sputnik stuff. Uh, that was probably one of the most formative books I've ever read. Awesome. And best piece of business advice you've ever received? Ooh. Uh, shout out to my first boss again. If you're not getting sued at least once a decade, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> I like that one. I like that one. It's like if you're not getting cease and desist letters, you're not innovating. You're not trying hard enough. Everybody, that is the Capital Stack. Thank you for tuning in. We air an episode every Tuesday. Please subscribe, share with a friend. Uh, We are on all major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. If you like it, please uh, subscribe and drop a comment. All right, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. 